0: section 8 of a history of the four georges in four volumes volume 2 by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter 28 the banished prince the conduct of the prince of wales was becoming more and more insolent to the king and queen every day Perhaps King George was right in his belief that Walpole's policy of compromise had made Frederick think himself of some real account in public affairs. It is certain that he began to act as if he were determined the whole nation should know how thoroughly independent he was of the authority of his father and mother. He had soon a peculiar opportunity of making a display of this ferocious independence." The Princess of Wales was about to have her first child. For some reason, which no one could well explain, the news of the coming event was not made known to the King and Queen until the hour of its coming was very near. Even then, there seems to have been some conscious or unconscious misleading of the King and Queen as to the actual time when, according to calculations, the child was to be born. The king and queen were left under the impression that it was a good deal further off than it really proved to be. The queen, with all her natural goodness of heart, was painfully suspicious. She was suspicious sometimes, even of those she loved and trusted, and she hated both the prince and the princess of Wales. She had taken it into her head that the princess of Wales was not likely to have a child. She persisted in asserting to those around her that the princess was not pregnant and never would be naturally when she allowed her mind to be filled with this idea the next conclusion for her to jump at was the conviction that a supposititious infant was about to be palmed off on the palace and the country this idea took full possession of her mind and she kept constantly telling those around her that no matter when or where the event might take place she was determined to be in at the birth in the most explicit and emphatic way she told people that she would make sure for herself that no child was imported in a warming-pan this time the king and queen were now in hampton court palace the prince and princess of wales were also living there nothing would have been easier for the queen than to carry out her purpose if the princess were allowed to remain in the palace until after her confinement it was reported to her that the prince had said he was anxious that his wife should be confined in London, in St. James's palace. This the queen was determined to prevent if she could. The princess Caroline fully shared her mother's belief that the prince of Wales was quite capable of palming off a spurious child on the country, and indeed the king became after a while as well convinced of it as his wife and daughter it was resolved that a message should be sent from the king to the prince of wales giving a sort of royal command that the princess should remain at hampton court until after her confinement lord harvey shook his head at all this he did not believe in the warming-pan fantasy and he felt sure that in any case the prince of wales would contrive to get his wife out of hampton court if he wished to do so what was to prevent the princess going up to london a little before her time and then affecting to fall suddenly ill there and declaring that she could not endure the pain and danger of removal lord harvey had seen a good deal of the prince in old days they had had friendships and quarrels and final estrangement and he knew his prince pretty well what harvey had predicted came to pass but in a worse way than he had ventured to predict the queen kept urging walpole to send the king's order to the prince. Walpole kept putting it off. For one reason, the minister had been told the confinement was to be expected in October, and this was only July. It is very likely, too, that he shared Harvey's skepticism alike as to the supposititious child and the possibility of keeping the prince's wife at Hampton Court against the prince's will. The royal command was never sent. On Sunday, July 31st, 1737. The Prince of Wales and the Princess dined publicly with the King and Queen in Hampton Court Palace. Not a word was said to anyone about an early approach of the confinement. The Princess seemed in her usual condition. The two sets of royal personages did not talk with each other at this time, although they thus had ceremonial meetings in public. The Queen called the attention of someone near her to the princess's opinion and insisted that she was not going to have a child at all when dinner was over the prince and princess went back to their own apartments and later that evening the princess was taken with the pains of labor then followed what has hardly ever happened in the story of the life of a poor washerwoman or a peasant's wife the unfortunate princess was far gone in her agony before anyone had time to think and before those around them had much time to think the prince of wales had determined to carry her off groaning in labour as she was and take her ten miles to london the whole story is a shocking one and we shall put it into a very narrow compass but it has to be told somehow by the help of an equerry and a dancing master the writhing princess was hoisted downstairs and got into a carriage the dancing master Dunoye, was a hanger-on and favorite of the prince, and being employed to teach dancing to the younger children of George II, acted as a kind of licensed spy, so Harvey says, on the one family and the other. In the carriage with the prince and princess came Lady Archibald Hamilton, who was understood to be the prince's mistress. No royal movement in those days would seem to be thought quite complete, without the presence of some mistress of the king or prince the carriage reached london about ten o'clock it had been driven at full gallop the poor princess writhing and screaming all the time and the prince scolding at her telling her it was nonsense to cry and groan about pain which would so soon be over when they got to st james's palace there were naturally no preparations made for a lying-in the prince and lady archibald hamilton set to work to get some things in readiness and found they had to send round the neighbourhood to collect some of the most necessary appliances for such an occasion so pitifully unprovided was the palace that no clean sheets could be found and the prince and his mistress put the princess to bed between two tablecloths at a quarter before eleven the birth took place a tiny baby was born a little rat of a girl lord harvey says about the bigness of a good large toothpick the little rat of a girl grew up however to be a handsome woman she was seen by john wilson croker in eighteen o nine and had still the remains of beauty the lords of the council had been hurriedly sent for to be present at the birth but the event was so sudden and so unexpected that only lord wilmington the president of the council and lord godolphin the privy seal arrived in time to be able to testify that no warming-pan operation was accomplished the unsuspecting king and queen had gone to bed according to their usual quiet custom at eleven o'clock their feelings as a certain class of writers are in the habit of saying may be more easily imagined than described when they were roused from sleep about two in the morning by the couriers who came to tell them that the princess had become the mother of a girl and that the prince and princess were at St. James's Palace, London. There was racing and chasing. Within half an hour the queen was on the road to London with the two eldest princesses, Lord Harvey and others. The queen comported herself with some patience and dignity when she saw the prince and princess. The child was shown to her. No clothes had yet been found for it, but some napkins and an old red cloak... The good God bless you, poor little creature, said the queen in French, you have come into a very disagreeable world. The king and queen consented to become the godfather and godmother of the poor little creature who had been brought thus disagreeably into this disagreeable world. But the conduct of the prince was regarded as unpardonable, and he was banished by royal letter from the king's palace, whether at Hampton Court or St. James's. The prince's own party, Pulteney and his colleagues, utterly refused to give their sanction to the extraordinary course which Frederick had taken. Bolingbroke wrote from France angrily and scornfully condemning it. But the patriots were willing and resolved to stand the prince's friends all the same, and they had not even the courage to advise him to make a frank and full apology for his conduct. Indeed, the action of the prince seems to suggest an approach to insanity rather than deliberate and reasoned perverseness he had forced his wife to run the risk of losing her own life and her child's life he had grossly and wantonly offended his father and mother and he had thrown a secrecy and mystery round the birth of the infant which if ever there came to be a dispute about the succession would give his enemies the most plausible excuse for proclaiming that a spurious child had been imposed upon the country as a friend of the queen said at the time if ever the crown came to be fought for again the only question could be whether the people would rather have the whig bastard or the tory bastard the whole business as might be expected caused a terrible scandal not merely was the prince banished from the palace not merely did the king refuse to see him or to hold further communication with him but it was formally announced by the secretaries of state to all the foreign ministers that it would be considered a mark of respect to the sovereign if they would abstain from visiting the prince furthermore a message was sent in writing to all peers peeresses and privy councillors, declaring that no one who went to the prince's court would be admitted into the king's presence never probably was domestic dirty linen more publicly washed nevertheless it very soon was made apparent that the course taken by the king was in strict accordance with a precedent which at one time had a very direct application to himself some of the prince's friends thought it a clever stroke of policy just then to print and publish the letters which passed between the late king and the present sovereign when the latter was Prince of Wales and got into a quarrel with his father. The late king sent his vice-chamberlain to order his son that he and his domestics must leave my house. A copy was also published of a circular letter signed by the honoured name of Joseph Addison, then Secretary of State, addressed to the English ministers at foreign courts, giving the king's version of the whole quarrel, in order that they might report him and his cause a right to the unsatisfied lord harvey is inclined to think that it was not the friends of the prince but rather walpole himself who got these letters printed harvey does not see what good the publication could do to the prince and the prince's cause but suggests that it might be a distinct service to walpole and walpole's master to show that the reigning king in his early days had been treated with even more harshness than he had just shown to his own son and with far less cause to justify the harshness still it seems to us natural for the prince's friends to believe it would strengthen him in popular sympathy if it were brought before men's minds that the very same sort of treatment of which george the second complained when it was visited on him by his own father he now had not scrupled or shamed to visit upon his son among other discoveries made at this time with regard to the more secret history of the late reign it was found out that george i actually entertained and encouraged a project for having the prince of wales now george the second put on board some war vessel and carried off to any part of the world that your majesty may be pleased to order this fact for fact it seems to be did not get to the public knowledge but it came to the knowledge of lord harvey who probably had it from the queen herself and it is confirmed by other and different testimony a prince of wales kidnapped and carried out of civilization by the command of his royal father would have made a piquant chapter in modern english history the prince and princess went to kew in the first instance and then the prince took norfolk house in st james's square for his town residence and clefton for his country place the prince put himself forward more conspicuously than ever as the head of the patriot party it was reported to walpole that in frederick's determination to make himself popular he was resolved to have a bill brought forward in the coming session of parliament to repeal the test act the test act was passed in the reign of charles the second sixteen seventy three and it declared that all officers civil or military of the government must take the sacrament according to the forms of the church of england and must take the oaths against the doctrine of transubstantiation. This act was, of course, regarded as a serious grievance by the dissenters of all denominations. Some few eminent churchmen, like Dr. Hoadley, Bishop of Winchester, had always been opposed to the narrow-minded policy of the act. Holdley, indeed, had made himself a sort of leader of the dissenting communities on this subject, for that and other reasons he had been described as the greatest dissenter who ever wore a mitre when the report got about that an attempt was to be made to have the test act repealed walpole with his usual astuteness sent for the bishop knowing very well that if such a determination had been come to dr holdley would be among the very first men to be consulted on the subject walpole expressed his mind very freely to holdley a coldness had long existed between them which walpole's gift of the bishopric of winchester had not removed Holdley had thought walpole slow lukewarm and indifferent about movements in reform of church and state which Holdley regarded as essential parts of the programme of the whig party walpole was perfectly frank with him on this occasion and explained to him the difficulty which would come up in english affairs if the Prince of Wales were encouraged to seek popularity at the expense of the King and Queen by making himself the champion of the dissenters' grievances. Hoadley met Walpole in a spirit of similar frankness. He declared that he always had been and always would be in favor of the repeal of the Test Act, but that he disapproved altogether of the Prince being set up in opposition to the King, and he believed that even the repeal of the Test Act would be brought at too dear a cost if it were the means of bringing the king into a distressing family quarrel therefore the bishop declared that he would give no encouragement to such a scheme of which he said he had lately heard nothing from the prince and that whatever kindnesses he might receive from frederick he should never forget his duty to george walpole was delighted with holdley's bearing and holdley's answer and seemed as if he never could praise him enough. No one can question Holdley's sincerity. We must only try to get ourselves back into the framework and the spirit of an age when a sound patriot and a high-minded ecclesiastic could be willing to postpone indefinitely an act of justice to a whole section of the community in order to avoid the risk of having the sovereign brought into disadvantageous comparison with the sovereign's eldest son walpole approved of the test act no more than holdley did although the spirit of his objection to it was far less positive and less exalted than that of holdley but walpole was of course an avowed opportunist he never professed or pretended to be anything better there is nothing surprising in the fact that he regarded an act of justice to the dissenters as merely a matter of public convenience to be performed when it could be performed without disturbing anybody of importance holdley must have looked at the subject from an entirely different point of view it must have been to him a question of justice or injustice yet he too was quite ready to put it off indefinitely rather than allow it to be made the means of obtaining a certain amount of popular favour for the prince of wales as opposed to his father the king we shall see such things occurring again and again in the course of this history the agreement of walpole and holdley did indeed put off the repeal of the test act for a pretty long time the brand and stigma on the protestant dissenters as well as on the roman catholics was allowed to remain in existence for nearly another century of english history we are now in seventeen thirty seven and the test act was not repealed until eighteen twenty eight historians are sometimes reproached for paying too much attention to palace squabbles yet a palace squabble becomes a matter of some importance if it can postpone an act of national justice for by far the greater part of a century there was a good deal of talk about this time of the possibility of adopting some arrangement for the separation of hanover from the english crown. the fact of the princess of wales having given birth to a daughter and not a son naturally led to a revival of this question the electorate of hanover could not descend to a woman and if the prince of wales should have no son some new arrangement would have to be made the queen was very anxious that hanover should be secured for her second son to whom she was much attached and the king was understood to be in favour of this project on the other hand it was given out that the prince of wales would be quite willing to renounce his rights in favour of his younger brother on condition of his getting the fifty thousand a year additional for which he had been clamouring in Parliament. Nothing could be more popular with the country than any arrangement which would sever the connection between the Crown of England and the Electorate of Hanover. If the Prince were seeking popularity, such a proposal coming from him would be popular indeed, provided it was not spoiled by the stipulation about the fifty thousand a year. The Queen's comment upon the rumours as to the Prince's intention was that in her firm belief he would sell the reversion of the Crown of England to the pretender if only the pretender offered him money enough. Nothing came of the talk about Hanover just then. The King and Queen had soon something else to think of. End of chapter 28